Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where the history community boils over in frustration. The podcast where myth and misconception are unceremoniously packed onto a train to the darkest regions of the realm. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am flying solo for the start of Series 10. Yes, Series 10 of which I have it on good authority, this makes us more popular than 24, and I think we've possibly done it with more explosions and a lot less torture. But thanks to all of you who have been with us since the dizzying lows of Series 1, and those of you who have stowed away on the race train ever since. We both love you all. So this week, dear ragers, we are kicking off Series 10 with quite a departure from our normal guest, a happy musical interlude covering a somewhat dark and over-propagandised historical subject. And taking us on this journey into the safer areas of the realm, we are joined by writer, comedian and producer of the remarkable musical podcast, Kisses on a Postcard, Dominic Frisby. Dominic, welcome to History Rage. Well, thank you very much, Paul. And uh, it's something has happened since we first uh, met over the internet about a month or so ago, which is that the, the, the show you just mentioned, as we just won the best serialized podcast award at the new york festivals i don't even know what the new york festivals are but apparently they're the radio's equivalent equivalent of the oscars so excellent that's pretty good yeah yeah well done because because i've listened to it and and it's it's impressive stuff i mean i i had it on in the car i'd have to confess i did have to pull over a couple of times just to recompose myself it was it was really emotional stuff so, as I say, you came to us courtesy of your publicist, and then I took the opportunity to listen to the podcast. Like I say, I was absolutely blown away. So, can you tell us and everybody out there how Kisses on a Postcard came about, and also how it comes to have the title that it has? Sure. So, my dad 
was a writer called Terence Frisbee, sadly no longer with us. And he was a very successful writer in his day. And during World War Two, he was evacuated from his parents in London down to the countryside. And he wrote a series of memoirs about his experiences as an evacuee in World War Two in Cornwall. And this was broadcast on BBC Radio in the 1980s. And it got the largest response that anyone in the BBC Radio department could remember in terms of listeners, letters from listeners. And it even got letters from people in Germany who'd been evacuated to escape Allied bombs. The, the message was that resonant. And it won the radio drama of the year and various things. And then Dad basically spent the next 20 or 30 years trying to get this thing made into a film. And it was optioned at one point by Ken Loach. And, and then there was a sort of chance situation where he was playing golf with his friend in a theatre down in Devon, in a, in a golf course down in Devon. And the proprietor of the local theatre said to him and his friend, have you got a project? And the friend had been always saying to my dad, this is a chap called Jeremy James Taylor. He'd always been saying to dad, oh, you should turn this thing into a musical. And dad said, no, 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 it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a film with Ken Loach. Anyway, so this thing was turned into a musical and it was performed in Devon in 2003. And it was basically the best thing I've ever seen in the theatre. And I was sort of going to dad after that, you have to turn this into a musical. And, And I tried to help him raise the money and, one thing and another, it never happened. And then during the lockdown, I was sat there and I was clearing out dad's flat after he died. And I stumbled across the script and I stumbled across the CD. And um, I thought, we're going to, I'm going to turn this into a podcast because I can do that during the lockdown. And then I approached a friend who I write comic songs with, and it turned out his dad had been eva- evacuated to exactly the same place. So it was, it was kind of destiny mm. there. And so we set about rewriting the whole thing. And the result is Kisses on a Postcard. So that's how it came about. And now I should tell you why it's called Kisses on a Postcard. Yeah. And so it's 1940. We're in southeast London in uh, Deptford, where Dad grew up. The last soldiers have just come back from Dunkirk. They know the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Uh, they know the, the, London, the cities are going to be bombed. And the directive comes from on high that every child in the cities has to be evacuated to the countryside nearly four million kids it was the largest movement of people in in british history and my dad was there my dad was seven his brother was 11 they were there with their mum, my grandmother and they didn't know where they were going who would be taking them in mm-hmm. how long they would be gone for they knew nothing and as far as my grandmother was concerned she could have been saying goodbye to her children for the very last time. She didn't know if she was ever going to see them again. And this wrench was happening to three and a half, four million kids around the country and, you know, similar amount of parents. And my grandmother decided to turn the whole thing into an adventure for them. Mm -hmm. And she did this by giving them a secret code. And the secret code was this. She would give them a stamped addressed envelope uh, and it, on the envelope, it said, dear mum and dad arrived safe and well, love Jack and Terry. Terry was my dad. Jack with his, was his brother. Yeah. And when they got to wherever they were going, they were to write the address of wherever they ended up 
They didn't, they had no idea when they were going. Can you imagine? They didn't know if they were going to, to Kent, to Wales. They had no idea, but they were to write the address of where they ended up. And here was the code. They were to put one kiss if it was horrible. And then my nan would come straight down and get them. They were to put two kisses if it was okay. And they were to put three kisses if it was nice. Okay. So that's the code. And so my grandmother takes them all to the station. They're put on the station along with the rest of their school, all the mums and dads waving goodbye to their kids. They don't know if they're ever going to see them again. And all they've got, they've got their gas masks. They've got a little label t- tied around their neck with their name on it. Yeah. You know, some sandwiches and a change of clothes. And the train takes them all the way across London, all the way through Surrey, Hampshire, Dorset, and it goes on and on through Devon, Somerset, Devon, and it ends up in Liscard, just beyond Plymouth in Cornwall. They get off the train, they're then all put in buses, and my dad and about 50 other kids ended up in a little village about eight or ten miles away from Liscard, and they're herded into the village hall, and all the kids are made to stand in the village hall, and the great expression was, I'll take that one there. That yeah. became the, the the expression across the country. And all these strange Cornish accents and these strange country smells. You can imagine southeast London to Cornwall. And my dad and his brother, they were told to stay together at all costs. They had to stay together. So there are couples trying to pick one of them and they're like, no, 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 we've got to stay together. And eventually they're chosen by this Welsh couple. Um, and they're taken back to... And we'll find out more about them in the podcast. And they're taken back to to their house, which is a tiny cottage at the end of a row of cottages by the railway. And this man worked on the railway. And they get into the uh, cottage and there's no electricity, just gas lamps. Mm -hmm. And there's a cat asleep by the hearth, a canary in a cage. Um, They go into the garden. There's a pig in the garden, chickens. And just beyond the garden, there are woods to explore with valleys, rivers, a tour to climb. And then at the end of their garden, there's the main line from London to Penzance. And dad comes from that generation that adored steam trains. And then they meet the son of the family, who's this sort of crazy young Welsh guy called Gwyn. They've all got these strange Welsh accents. And this first song that I'm going to play you, uh, takes place on the first night when the two boys are sat on a mattress. They had to top and tail on a mattress in the hall and they're sat in the mattress and Auntie Rose and Uncle Jack are the couple that have taken them in. Their son is called Gwyn. There's no lavatory, only outdoor laves. And the two boys are looking at their postcard and they're deciding how many kisses to put on their card to send to mum. How many kisses? I vote three. What would mum and dad think of it here? Don't know. No electricity. They wouldn't like that. I don't care. There's no bathroom. I don't care. Outside love, all they have. I can't go in an outside love. I don't mind. I don't care. What if it's freezing cold out there? That's what the pot's for, don't you see? I vote one. I vote three. Just one bed, got to share, all squashed up in it I 
She's mad, Auntie Rose. What are you say? She says weird things, but she's okay. Not Uncle Jack though. He plays rough. Pulled my hair, called me scruff. Kisses on a postcard. What do we do? I still say three. Well, I say two. Kisses on a postcard. Three, two, one. Better be quick, or it won't get done. Less than three, Mum and Dad will think it's rotten here. They'll be worried. Yeah. Well, there's the trains. They're good. And the station right next to us. That's terrific. Hey, wait! I've just remembered. Hens. What about hens? Eggs, stupid. Real eggs. Not that horrible powdery stuff. Eggs for you. Eggs for me. Eggs for breakfast. Up and tea. Poached or baked. Scrambled or fried. On board with soldiers on the side. Your score. All right, three. I say four. You can't. Why not? Mum only set up to three. But don't you see? The more kisses we put, the more happy they're going to be. Yeah, it's terrific here, really, isn't it? Like being on holiday. Only there's no seat. We don't have to stop at four. Let's do hundreds. Yeah. Kisses on a postcard, one by one. All round the edges. This is fun. Kisses on a postcard, squashed up. So that last song, that last bit of the song there that you heard, Goodnight Children Everywhere, is the only um, piece of music from World War II that we use that is not original. And that song was originally sung by Vera Lynn and it was broadcast on BBC Radio. And it had such an impact, it caused so many mothers around the country to weep at their missing children that the BBC actually had to ban the song wasn't banned because of swearing or anything like that. It was yeah. banned because it caused so much heartache for so many people. Isn't that incredible? And it was just so moving. That's why we kept it in. Yeah. It's, yeah. Now, when you put it like that, yeah. So, you know what History Rage is about? And I know we're going down a slightly different angle to our usual episode here, but I would be tarred, feathered and packed off to Cornwall myself if I uh, if I didn't ask the, the question. So... So what is it really that's prompted you to come on History Rage? What is it that's, that, that annoys you about history, about this huh. history? Well, 
Paul, there are a million things that annoy me about history and the way history is reported. And I always find that people are trying to impose their own worldview on history, their own politics, their own political narrative on history. And, you know, I've written books all about history. I wrote a book all about the history of taxation. But since we are talking about the evacuation, I'm going to rave about the evacuation itself. As I said, this was the largest movement of people in our country's history. Three and a half million to four million kids separated from their parents. Now, some of the kids, like my parents, my dad, had happy experiences. Many didn't. Many never saw their parents again. And, like, can you imagine the disruption that that caused to families around the country? Yeah. It's just extraordinary. Do you have young children? Uh, I don't. I'm in the very fortunate position of I have a dog and no children, (laughs) which means I have money, time and breathing space. (laughs) Well, lucky you. But I mean, just I'm sure you've got people, you've got friends who've got young kids and you can just imagine your seven year old kid. If you if you were under the age of five, your mother could come with you over the age of five. Your mother wasn't allowed to come with you. And so you've just imagined putting your kids just with a label on them. You don't know where they're going. You don't know how long they're going to be gone for. You don't know who's going to be taking them in. You don't know if you're ever going to see them again. And it's just the pain of that and the disruption it caused to families. And just so many people who've listened to this story just go, I had no idea that evacuation took place. It's just an untold story. And it's, it's, I just think the long-term impact of that you know, people wonder why we kind of seen the erosion of the family in the West and particularly in the UK. And, you know, there are a million different reasons for it. But that evacuation, uh, the social consequences of that are just not spoken about. And I think they're tremendous and they're enormous. So my rage, my rave is why are we not talking about the evacuation? Why are we not telling that story? It is so important. And that is it. Yeah, not least of which because it's it, it's that kind of untapped collection of veterans that we still have uh, in many occasions as well. My my uncle was evacuated. I didn't find that out until ten years ago. He seemed yeah. he seemed to enjoy it. Um, I've I've met a few evacuees. I was honoured to attend an evacuee reunion uh, at a village in Northamptonshire, and you you got all those stories of. Uh, especially, I think they remind, remind me, one of them said, since you have this idea when you see all the photographs that happy children, school uniforms, caps, waving away uh, as, as they go off. He said, can you, he said, he yeah, went. I mean, how from, different was the truth? Yeah. And I think he went from, I think it was something like, to some part of London. I don't, I don't know which one, but, but he, he ended up with, about an eight-hour train journey. Honestly, could you imagine the state yeah. of him when he got off? I you bet know. you he was sent to Cornwall because a lot of the London kids were sent down there. And I mean, Cornwall would be a five or six-hour journey, yeah, from London. In fact, I'm, I'm putting, I'm doing it on today's trains. <laughs> so yeah, who knows? The, the, those ones may have run more mm. efficiently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some were just sent to like Kent and Sussex or wherever, and it was every city in the country. Yeah. Yeah, I know it was, uh, because my uncle, my uncle lived in central Leeds. It's pretty much about 25 yards away from a major factory. So they, they got, they got him out of the way. Mm-hmm. 
and and four years my dad was gone for yeah yeah that is you know a, from the age of seven to eleven that's he only came back because he got a scholarship to dartford grammar and uh that's the, the school up the road and and um yeah that's why he came back yeah because as i recall from listening to it there's what is it is it the strong one or the thick one <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> his brother was thick and he was the he was the clever one <laughs> yeah okay so so it's set in the small village in cornwall let's let's take a moment to introduce a few of the characters so if you could tell us a bit about uncle jack and auntie rose and and, and the impact of this sudden in, uh influx of what they called vacky kids on the yeah. village well let's talk about the impact on the village first and then we'll talk about auntie rose and uncle jack so you know uh, everything I've just described, I've talked about it from the perspective of the kids and the parents of the kids who are evacuated. But what and another side to this is just the impact of all the kids on the village. And, you know, a, a lot of families were like dad said that the 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 population of under 15s trebled overnight in that village. And suddenly, thought and, alone is terrifying. Yeah, and you know, you're talking about a bunch of really streetwise Cockney kids dumped with a bunch of rural Cornish kids, and the Cockney kids were just so much more streetwise. They were canny, and they would do things like they would have football matches between the kids or cricket matches, and but everything they did, like the Cockney, Dad said, they beat the the Cockneys would beat the local kids like twenty nil at football. And cricket, they would just destroy them. And, you know, he, he used the expression, they even cheated better. <laughs> and the, and he calls them, so he says, we were the grey squirrels and they were the red squirrels. And, you know, the, the Cockneys had contempt for the village kids because they just thought they were all thick and stupid. And the village kids resented these newcomers and they just fought and fought and fought that just as all the time they were fighting. And, um, so that was one big impact. And then, you know, imagine you're a family quite living, living happily and you, your mum and dad and you've got your three kids or whatever. And then suddenly there's three more kids in the family. How much disruption? Who gets the attention? You know, what kind of impact did that have? And then, but there were other people who, you know, found themselves having a second chance at parenthood or spinsters you know there were a lot of spinsters in those days obviously because of world war one left a lot of unmarried women and um suddenly they had chances to be parents you know so um so there's all sorts of it just had a tremendous impact on the village and then later you know all the soldiers would be billeted on the village as well and that that had its own impact and we'll come to that so that you know and this that dynamic was happening at every single village across the country <laughs> So that's one thing. Now we'll talk about Auntie Rose and Uncle Jack. Now we're down in Cornwall and there's actually quite a lot of migration between Wales and Cornwall for obvious mm. reasons. But Uncle Jack uh, was the man and he was a five foot tall Welshman, tiny little Welshman, <laughs> prop forward in rugby. And his wife, Auntie Rose, was taller than her. And he had been a soldier in World War One in a regiment called the Welsh Bantams who originally they couldn't join the army because they were considered too small. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, they needed every young man they could get. So they allowed the shorties and he had come up in a, he'd been in a famous battle in the Somme called the Mammoth's Wood Massacre. And they'd come up against um, a regiment from Prussia, the Prussian guard who were all over six foot. And he told my dad the story and dad and his brother are going, Oh, that's unfair. You know, if they're all really tall and you're all really short and, 
he came up with this wise line, every man's the same height when a bullet hits him, he's horizontal. Yeah. And, but anyway, he was a old school, big um, champion of Ernest Bevan. He was an old school socialist. He'd worked down the mines. Then he'd become a soldier in the Somme. And then he, and he was in this massacre and only 17 of them survived this, this terrible massacre. And he'd gone back to, um, his village in Corm in Wales. And he was the only man who came back to the village. Can you imagine that? The only man they'd sent the whole village had gone out to fight. And he was the only one who came back and all the women would look at auntie Rose when they were walking through the village together. And they would just almost blame auntie Rose for the fact that her husband had come back and none of the others had come back. And eventually it got too much. And so they left the village Mm. And they went down to Cornwall where he became a plate layer on the railway. You know, at first they wouldn't tell him the stories. Uh, they, he wouldn't, you know, cause soldiers from World War One were very uh, reticent to tell stories yeah. about what went on in the trenches for obvious reasons. And he had two shells on the mantelpiece and one was his and one had been given to his mate for heroism or whatever. And then they were going, well, why hasn't your mate got, got his shell? And he would say there were plenty more battles, boy. In other words, he'd been killed at some later stage, but he would, and he sings this brilliant song called hole in the ground, which is all about how he started life down the mines. And then in the trenches, you know, the trenches are your lifeline and that's where you end up hole in the ground. And he was so anti-authoritarian as a result of his experiences and his son, their son, Gwyn would go on to be killed in Sicily later in the story later in the war and he comes out with the line never 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 trust your leaders churchill's a hero montgomery's a hero gwyn is dead and it's not just this war or the last it's all history into the valley of death rode the 500 who sent them there eh yeah so he was this really passionate articulate anti-authoritarian figure but he was also uh he was very atheist as well which you know today it's kind of almost normal to be atheist but but then it was considered bold and he he didn't like the church because it was full of tories but he loved music Mm -hmm. and he he was training his son gwyn to be a singer so that gwyn could escape the life that he had had um, and so he, would, but he would train the boys to sing all the time. He got the two dad and his brother to sing. Um, and he would, they would enter them for the singing competitions, which, which they would win sometimes. And so he just li- he had that Welsh love of singing and all the time he was singing, he had a love of poetry. He'd get them to recite poetry to him. So an amazing man. And then his wife, Auntie Rose was just this sort of just pure love giving solid centered she was auntie rose to the whole village and you know she was the person that everyone went to in a crisis just this dependable solid woman and um in the in the show it's he's played by john owen jones who was famously he did performed the phantom in the phantom of the opera more times than anyone else and voted the greatest ever jean valjean in les mis and um uh auntie rose is played by katie seacombe uh harry seacombe's daughter and it's they're both just absolutely brilliant but what an amazing couple to have taken them in and a great inspiration to dad and his brother all through their life 
Yeah, because when they took them in as well, they were very adamant, we just want one. Yeah. And they have to stay together. Absolutely. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, so speaking of that impact then, now this was a question that you sent us, which came as a surprise to me because it was less apparent from for, from actually listening to it. So, so. We have this idea of evacuation being to safety, but tell us about the time your dad nearly got shot. Yeah. So um, it's an amazing story. So they were maybe 20 miles from Plymouth and Plymouth was famously bombed, raised to the ground twice hmm. in the war. There was like, they bombed it because all the Navy, the docks were all there in Devonport docks, docks all the ships so the, the Luftwaffe targeted it twice and there were two days of re relentless attack and then six months later, three days of relentless attack on Plymouth. And dad and his brother, you know, they would know the names of all the ships. They would know the names of all the planes. They would know the names, you know, they just knew everything because kids in those days were obsessed with the war and the soldiers. I guess the soldiers in those days were like football players to kids now. They were their heroes, you know. And... Um, he was in the garden with his, with Auntie Rose, dad, and this, um, uh, what was it called? The flying pencil was the name of one of the types <laughs> of plane, the, the Dornier, Dornier 15. So I can't remember the name of it, but anyway, this pencil flew out this, it had been hit and it was coming down to crash in the valley right past their house. And the, the plane flew over and, it, at the back of the thing, it had the machine gunner in the back of the plane. And, uh, you know, who'd be some, uh, German kid, you know, probably in his tw early twenties or something. And dad and auntie Rose, as the plane was coming over and crashing, made eye contact. He was that close. And the gunner, you know, went to, to shoot as you do if you're a gunner. Mm. And then he looked dad and auntie rose and he just saw an old lady and a little kid and he decided not to shoot them and probably not 10 seconds later the plane crashed in the valley and all the everyone on that plane lost their life so in that instant that's that german soldier had that moment when he could have shot them and he didn't but you know they were he, he describes it they were probably not 50 feet away or something yeah. it was that close yeah, it was the sort of thing that the entire village had come out to see as well. Yeah. Well, I think it was, it happened very quickly. So it was those who happened to be in the garden at the time. Mm. And, um, and Auntie Rose was terribly upset. I mean, you know, they're all upset by the, by the crash, but Auntie Rose was upset because the kid was the same age as her own Gwyn, who was out in Sicily fighting at the time. 
So we've got, we've got one instance there of a almost near-death experience. Do all the Vaki kids get home? What, what sort of happens? I mean, we're aware that your dad and your uncle kind of do make it through the war. What about the rest of the, the kids that are in there? There was one kid that didn't. And he was one of the youngest kids. And what had happened is the soldiers took over the manor house. And the kids would all just go and pester the soldiers all the time. Can we go on your Jeep? Can I touch your gun? Can I wear your hat? All this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And, the, and the, you know, the soldiers would sometimes would play with them and sometimes a sergeant major would come along and get rid of all the kids or whatever. But they all used to sit on this gate at the end of the drive and swing on the gate. And because apparently when it shut, it gave a really kind of satisfying clang. But because the, there were so many Jeeps coming back and forth and tanks and whatever else, eventually they decided to take the gate off the hinges and leave the gate on the side. And so the kids carried on sitting on the gate. And then one day, and there was this boy, Teddy Willis, and dad would have been about eight or nine, ten at the time. And Teddy Willis was only five. And his mum had actually come down with him because he was under five at the time of the evacuation. But by this time, he was maybe six, five or six. Anyway, they're all sat on the gate, and a jeep comes round the corner too fast, and it catches the end of the gate. And most of the kids get thrown into the bushes. But Teddy Willis gets trapped under the gate, and then the jeep went over the gate. Oh! And so Teddy Willis was killed. And, you know, all the kids just see him die. Just totally needless accident. And then... um dad tells the story where he had his funeral and all the kids had to, you know, his, his, his dad, who was a grenadier guard or something came up from London. And can you imagine the grief of the mother, not just for only losing her own kid, but she'd gone down to look after the kid. And then she, he died on her watch. I mean, I just dread to think. Yeah, she's taken him out of London. Yeah. For, to, to prevent that very thing. Yeah. And anyway, dad tells the story of how all the kids were made to carry the coffin or like the kids in the, in the row of houses where they lived, but nobody taught them to walk in time. And they all had their hobnailed boots. And all dad remembers is his, he's trying to carry this coffin and his, just his shins being kicked to hell by the heels of the kid in front. And then his calves being kicked by the, by the boy behind him. And so his, you know, the bottom of his legs was torn up. And then they put the coffin on the on the train back to London. And then dad ran into school and nobody had told the school teacher that this kid had died. And dad got six of the best because he was late for class. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a pretty horrible story. But but that's, you know, it wasn't like people could send texts or something like we can today. And, and nobody had told the teacher she hadn't found out about it. And he got dad got six of the best. <laughs> so. You mentioned earlier, mentioned at the start that you, you've got soldiers coming in. So, I mean, one big area of change that was felt all across the UK was the arrival of Americans into Britain. So what happened when the Americans arrive in a village that's already overrun with additional kids? Yeah. Well, there were all sorts of soldiers going through the village. So when dad arrived there, there was the soldiers from Dunkirk. And there were actually two soldiers in the house that they were in and they, one of them had shell shock and he just totally, mm. he just couldn't speak. P PTSD, they call it now. And then there were all sorts of soldiers 
billeted in the villages they were trained you know because there was the, the there was the manor house and there was that the manor house became the barracks and so there were all sorts of soldiers and then uh english soldiers and then prior to d-day the american soldiers arrive but you know in this part of cornwall the english were foreigners you know cornwall's very independent yeah so english were foreigners and americans you know may as well have just been from mars for whatever reason, one of the regiments that got billeted on this village was a regiment from Louisiana. And it was one of those all black regiments. Mm -hmm. And so dad said, you know, I had a tap dancing lesson on a sheet of plywood outside the barracks from a man from New Orleans itself. He's there's one of the stories he tells. <laughs> and nobody in this, in, you know, Nobody in Cornwall, in that little village in Cornwall, had seen a black man before. Actually, Cornwall had a lot of history of interaction with North Africa. So there was some history of interaction. But in this, this was in central Cornwall. It wasn't out on yeah. the coast. And so just nobody had seen a black man before. And, and so that was created a tremendous amount of excitement. And I said to dad, you made that up. You made that up because that's a better story in the thing if all the soldiers had been billeted. And he was like, I, I promise you, I didn't. And anyway, I did a bit of research. Um, I was out in uh, New Orleans in last October. And so I did a bit of research. There's a fantastic war museum in, in New Orleans. And I found out that there was actually a black regiment from Louisiana billeted on that village. So he was telling the truth. <laughs> and um, of course, there was this girl that uh, dad was in love with who lived from the flats. And um, she like taught dad the facts of life when dad was nine and she was 14 or something in the and, only way that a 14 year old can well, teach a nine exactly. year old <laughs> but then once she sort of got to 15 or 16 she lost total interest in dad and you know it, it was all about the soldiers and then you know when the americans came she was one of those many women who became pregnant uh, uh by an american soldier and um you, you know she was going to have to go into a home for unmarried mothers and we went, dad was, uh, um, died a few years ago and we went down to Cornwall. They had a memorial for him in this village that he was evacuated to because he'd yeah. written so much about it. And we met some old lady who'd, who was married to one of the guys who lived like two doors up from dad. And so she knew all the history and she said, Oh no, that girl did become pregnant and she became pregnant by a black soldier. And there was a big scandal about it at the time. So again, it was true. He hadn't invented it, but anyway, she was to be put into one of those homes for unmarried mothers that happened, you know, they, they rose up all over the war yeah. and this was towards the end of the war. And at this point, um, dad and his brother are going back and Gwyn, uh, as I already said, Gwyn is killed, was killed fighting in Sicily and dad and his brother actually offered to like one of them, dad won a scholarship to Dartford grammar. So dad would go back and Jack, his brother would stay in Cornwall to replace Gwyn. So that was, that's quite an emotional offer, you know, it, and, and they wrote a letter home to their parents saying, it's only fair. Then we've got one each and Jack will stay here and I'll come. But anyway, auntie Rose and uncle Jack said, no, 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 you're not coming back uh, because we're taking in Elsie. And so rather than send Elsie and her and her kid into one of those homes for unmarried mothers, they took her in. And, um, I mean, just the most selfless 
salt of the earth kind giving couple they got they were paid you know every time they got their little whatever it was a few shillings of payment for doing it so i'm sure that affected their decision but nevertheless they took this um this you know however old she was 17 or something yeah and her kid I have to. Be, I have to say. I mean, I've not. I've not been a parent. So, parents out there, you can get on Twitter and share your pain. But to have to have done the whole thing of parenthood once, and then to even well, oh, we say temporarily, but really, when you take one of those kids in, you have no idea how long they're going to be yeah. there, and, and they to, lost to do it again, son. lose a son, and then taking a daughter and a. Just an incredible couple. Yeah, what are they? They deserve medals. <laughs> this is why I was raving about the evacuation. All those people like that, nobody hears about them. We hear yeah. about Churchill. We hear about the, you know, the genius of whatever battle plan and and the the, the hero in Colditz and yada yada. But you don't you don't hear about the the civilian sacrifices that went on. And believe me, there were lots. So. You mentioned that we mentioned earlier that that not all the kids make it home, poor Teddy. And in case of Gwyn, not all the adults make it home either. I mean, how how did the how did the family cope with such a loss? And also, how did your dad cope with it as a child? Because he he liked Gwyn. Yeah, he did. I I don't. I, he didn't talk about it really he wrote i mean he obviously wrote it as a story and he dramatized it because he was a dramatist but but by the time i came to this story it was already it was already this drama you know the, this kisses on a postcard and and so i mean it must have had an impact on him but i think when you're seven eight nine ten you're a kid you just sort of accept things mm. and you, you know you get over stuff and I, I i don't even know after dad and jack dad and his brother came home I, I don't even know how much contact they had with the family that had taken them in they must have written occasional letters but i don't i don't know how much contact he had and yeah it's 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 one of those many questions you know we we had a big family event at the weekend and and my daughter uh, my younger daughter was just saying i wish granddad terry was still alive because there are so many questions i want to ask him and, you know, having produced this kisses on a postcard thing, you know, there are a million questions I want to ask him about mm. it. And there are a million other questions that I want to ask him and, and just about other things. And I just wish I'd asked him when he was alive. And, and I think this is something that, you know, all people who've lost a loved one experience, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done more with them and, and told them I loved them and more or asked them this or that question. And, but it also, there's a big question there about oral history. You know, so much of history is just passed on through stories. And, mm. you know, some of it gets, you know, I, I, one of the things that always, question I always like asking, I'll ask you this question, of all the plethora of religions that existed in the Middle East, in, in ancient Mesopotamia and all that, why did Judaism survive and none of the others survive? And the, no answer, is, the answer is they wrote it down yeah and so every you know that's why none of the pagan religions from northern europe survived christianity because christianity was all written down and you know the the norse religions just weren't and so that 
you know, I bet some of those Norse religions were brilliant, but they just didn't survive. And so it's just the difference of the way we record history is, is what gets written down gets preserved and, and what is transferred orally, where does it go? I don't know where it goes. It's a really quite a profound thought, but that's the nature of oral history. That is indeed. Well, thank you very much for that, Dominic. That was, like you say, it, it opened my eyes to, to evacuation and I've, I've actually looked into it further, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Let's, let's talk more about evacuation, uh, as just a concept because there is three and a half to four million kids being probably dropped in on one to two million absolute bloody heroes. Yeah. And yeah. it's fair, probably some villains in there as well. Not everybody has a happy. Yeah, they didn't have those checks, you know, that teachers and everyone has to have now. If you're looking after kids, you have to have all those what yeah. called DBI checks, whatever they call. Yeah, them. we don't have safeguarding rules in 1940, yeah. really, do we? But yeah, let's let's have a hat hat off to them. Well, well, thank you very much. That was that was absolutely epic. Did did you have fun with it? I I I, I love talking about this project. And it's become my life mission. All I want is as many people as possible to listen to Kisses on a Postcard. And you can get it, by the way, just type in Kisses on a Postcard yeah. into your podcast app. But it's kissesonapostcard.com if you want to buy CDs and all that. But I just want as many people to listen to it. And I want it to become a TV show or a film or a stage show. I just want it because it's just such a powerful story. The music is beautiful. You will laugh. You will cry. And yeah, it's become my life's mission to promote it. So I'm very grateful to you, Paul, for, for giving me the opportunity. Do you have like a theme tune to this podcast? Does the podcast have a theme tune? Um, cause I was going to suggest, I was going to suggest, I'll tell you about another song from the show and you could just play us out. You could play, use yeah. that as the end music if you like. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, so, so the original composer of all the music was a chap called Gordon Clyde, who was a, an old actor friend of dad's and, um, he passed, he passed away in 2008. So it was me and a guy called Martin Wheatley who wrote the remainder of the music. But this song is written by Gordon Clyde and it's called England's Bells. And this is a song about during World War II, they stopped ringing the church bells. And I love the sound of church bells. It's one of the most beautiful, happy, you know, it's wedding celebration. I love that sound, but they were to only to ring the church bells if England was invaded or when the war was over. And so this song's called England's Bells and, but it is inspired by the fact that there were to be no church bells run during the war. Well, thank you very much. If you'd like to know more, ladies and gentlemen, then as I said, you should start by listening to Kisses on a Postcard, which you can find on Apple, Spotify, wherever you found us. Uh, you can also listen via the website, kissesonapostcard.com, and you can buy the original memoir by Dominic's father at the History Rage Bookshop, and we will have links to all of those in the show notes. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at uh, History Rage, or individually, I am at Paul Bavel. Kyle is at Kyle G History. And if you're loving this, then why not join the Angry Mob on Patreon? Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, please enjoy English Bells from Kisses on a Postcard. Thank you very much. Long ago, 
Shadow of war.